for your mercy and grace that we've already sung about, we've already contemplated, that is centered on your Son and his all-sufficient work as our substitute. And, Lord, we thank you for the Spirit, the very Holy Spirit, equal in essence and power and glory to you, Father, and to the Son, but one who has come to glorify the Son. And may the Spirit glorify the Son today through the preaching of the Word. We ask this for the Son's sake. Amen. Many adventure stories begin with the main character living some humdrum kind of existence. Oftentimes it's a rural kind of life in a small town with mundane chores. We can relate to those characters, can't we? And then someone interrupts the character's existence and calls them into an adventure they had never anticipated. Many adventure stories. You think of Star Wars. You can think of Lord of the Rings. Even Disney classics like uh, Cinderella. But have you ever wondered what their lives would have been like had they never been interrupted. Luke Skywalker would probably have inherited Uncle Owen's moisture farm. Frodo Baggins likely would have stayed at Bag Inn, growing fat and bored. Cinderella, she would still be serving Lady Tremaine, her evil stepmother. But the interruption changed everything. Have you ever wondered what your life would be like had it not been gloriously interrupted by the grace of God? That answer would be unfathomable to most of us to contemplate. Well, let me submit to you that God would have never interrupted your life had he not interrupted the life of David. Of course, the interruption of David's life was not some spontaneous act on the part of God. This plan was revealed all the way back to the first king, Adam, and the queen, Eve. Adam and Eve had a relationship with their creator as its image bearers that was relational, personal, and legal. It was a covenant relationship. It was the great king's prerogative to form this relationship with his image bearers, and he was very generous in this covenant relationship. He gave them a garden paradise with the potential of that garden paradise encompassing the whole earth, every nook and cranny. He also gave them, related to that, a very high and most glorious commission to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth, to extend the borders of this garden paradise until the whole earth was one big temple city. 
to take dominion, to rule as God's vice kings, vice regents. The only obligation was one command. And on it hung the future of humanity, the promise of life, and the threat of death. Well, they broke their covenant, what some would call the covenant of creation, the covenant of representation. They broke their covenant with the great king, and the rest of their story is our story. Story of sin, misery, and death. And yet in the midst of that cosmic tragedy, God promised a male offspring. A male offspring from the woman who would come to set things right by crushing the head of the serpent. In time, we will learn that this male offspring that was promised by our Lord would be a son of Abraham. Through Abraham's offspring, there would be worldwide blessing. The curse would be reversed. A few generations later, God narrows it down even more and says it will be through one of Abraham's descendants, Judah, that this salvation, this blessing would come. With him would come the obedience of the nations by his scepter, by the king's scepter. And now, in 2 Samuel chapter 7, we find what the people of God have been waiting for for centuries upon centuries, the fulfillment of that promise, at least partially, an installment, if you will, of the fulfillment of that promise. Now, at this point in Israel's history, as we approach 2 Samuel 7, just a little context here, Israel has emerged from their enslavement to Egypt, they've entered into a covenant with God through Moses. It's what we know, know as the Sinai covenant, the Mosaic covenant. And progressively throughout their history, God has been teaching them things. God has been clarifying some things such as the offices of this nation. Under Moses, it was the office of the priest that was introduced Every, think about this, every infraction of the law that was given to us, starting in Exodus 20, really through Exodus 24, every infraction of the law of Moses had a corresponding sacrifice to deal with it. Isn't that grace? Offered by the priest. Then in the chaos that followed, Joshua's death, known as the period of the judges, when all 12 tribes acted like the nations. They did that which was right in their own eyes because they had no king. In that period, though, we find the emergence of a new office, the office of the prophet. Now, the prophet had been introduced in Deuteronomy 18 by Moses, 
But here, it's during this time, and most especially in the person of Samuel, we see the office of prophet regulated, regularized. And the business of the prophet was to receive a word from God and then declare that word to the people of God because the people of God need a word, an authoritative, definitive word from God. And yet over and over, Israel dismissed the prophetic word. And soon they are clamoring for a king like all the other nations have. And God gave them what they desired in Saul. And it didn't work. It didn't work until the great king graciously and mercifully selected his own king. And with the appointment of David, the invisible rule of the great king becomes visible in David. That's important for us to understand, especially in the promises of 2 Samuel 7 as they begin to unfold. Now, there are few chapters in the Scripture. There are few chapters in the Old Testament more crucial to understanding redemptive history than 2 Samuel 7. So if you want to know how well a person knows their Old Testament, look and see how marked up 2 Samuel 7 is. So look at your neighbor's button. Just kidding, I'm going to do that. <laughs> at this point, Israel is living under the Mosaic Covenant, but they're hoping in the promises made to Abraham. They're hoping in the promises made to Judah. A promise that we're going to see will be fulfilled in installment form through David. But before we get to that covenant, most specifically, verse 8, which we will address next week, God has some final preparation to do in David's life. That brings us to verse 1 of 2 Samuel 7. Up to this point, we've seen Israel's history in some, some summary form. And here in verses 1 to 3, we see the situation now as David perceived it. Look at in verse 1. Now, when the king lived in his house, of course, that house had been built by the king of Tyre, Hiram, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. Now, I love that language of rest. What is rest? Sometimes we come across terms that we may not be able to fully define, but we know it when we see it. Or more, better said, we know it when we experience it. Rest is freedom from everything which worries and disturbs and violates shalom. That's what rest is. It's freedom to flourish with security and shalom. It's what our hearts long for. That's why when we read that promise from Jesus, come to me all you that labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. 
even the unbeliever hears that and their hearts are stirred by such a promise. But note this rest was the Lord's doing. The Lord had given him rest. Rest was a fulfillment of God's promises. God had rested on the seventh day, and he promised to give rest in the land. Exodus 33, verse 14. In, in fact, he promised rest from all of their enemies. Deuteronomy 25, verse 19. This line, in fact, is an actual quotation from Deuteronomy 12, verse 10, where we see the promise that the Lord will bring rest to all 12 tribes as he overcomes their enemies. And our hearts long for that, doesn't it? And now with the rest achieved, at least partially, David had a new concern. Rest has come, and now David wants to give greater glory to God by housing the ark in a more fitting place. Verse 2, the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. This is the first time we see Nathan mentioned in the narrative. He's not going to go away. He's going to be in David's life from here on out. This is the first time we see it. But I want you to notice here the irony in verse 2. Holy restlessness produced by rest. Isn't that ironic? David is at rest, but he's not at rest. There's a holy restlessness. I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. Oftentimes, people of great accomplishment and great prosperity and attainment indulge themselves after their accomplishments, right? In hedonism, that is the pursuit and delight in pleasure, and in materialism. A.W. Pink comments on the tendency for the wealthy and those at ease to cause ruin in our lives by that. Now, when I think about wealthy, I think about, you know, the billionaires, the multimillionaires, but I want you to understand this is the wealthiest time in the history of the world. And all of us in here are wealthy by world standards. All you have to do is travel, and you'll see that. But recognize as well, we're wealthy by historical standards. We're wealthier than kings of previous generations. Most, most kings in history didn't even have electric lights, indoor plumbing. We, we have things that kings did not have in previous generations. And so we are the wealthy that A.W. Pink is talking about here. And here's what he says. When the conflict is over, whatever that conflict is, and the sword is laid down, we are very apt to relax and become careless about spiritual concerns. And then it's while we're off our guard 
that Satan so often succeeds in gaining an advantage over us. That's David in chapter 11, incidentally. In the springtime when kings go to war, David finds himself in trouble there. But for now, his, to his credit, when the Lord gave him rest, he developed this holy restlessness. And, and I believe as we read this, we should pray for that same holy restlessness. We should pray to have the same restlessness that is in David right here. And, and we should seek to emulate David. If we find ourselves uh, in a place of uh, security and we find ourselves in a successful place in life, but today in the affluent West, here's how it normally goes. When you retire and you've reached your financial goals, you're supposed to just eat, drink, and be merry and live the life of luxury. I'm reminded of a piece that John Piper popularized. It was a piece from the 1998 Reader's Digest. It was an article there. And it was an article about a couple who retired in their early 50s. And they bought a yacht. And they spent their retirement years going from beach to beach, playing softball and collecting seashells. And Piper, in his sermon, exhorted us to visualize the day of judgment when they stand before Christ and all they can do is say, Lord, look at my shells. Look at my shells. That's how they invested their retirement years. And the anecdote to this trend, and it is a trend, the anecdote to this impulse is holy restlessness. Of course, David's example isn't just for retirees. It's an example for us all. If I read that someone has holy restlessness in Scripture and I don't have it, what should I do? The wise thing to do is to pray for it, to plead to God for this holy restlessness. But it's also a great model for young believers to help guard them from the vain goals of the rest of their generation. You know, these vain goals of, of, of trying to be famous for fame's sake, wealthy, and living these lives of luxury, which satisfy others. But for the young believer... For our youth who are setting out, trying to determine what they're to do with their lives. What a wonderful example for us in King David. And David recognized he was blessed by God, that he had experienced rest, and he was living in a palace of cedar, premium wood. And he's troubled over the comparative humility of where the ark resided, the ark representing the presence of God. It resided in a tent. David couldn't get over that because David was overcome by God's steadfast love and faithfulness. David recognized that God had brought this rest and grateful souls never think they can do enough. 
I learned that a few years ago when the kids were younger. I took them to a restaurant in town when Heather was out of town. And I was overwhelmed. At the time we had four kids and they were highly energetic. We spanked them into being still. But at that point, just kidding, social services. Uh, but at the time, they were moving all over the place in the booth. And this male waiter comes over to the table and he gets in the booth with me. I'm like, weird. <laughs> and then he pulls out the, the menu and he begins to tell me, kids love this. Kids hate this. This is a good deal. This is a terrible deal. And he helped order, helped me order my, the meals. Halfway through the meal, he brings out free gift certificates, gift certificates for free meals for kids. And then towards the end of the meal, he brings out this huge platter of brownies and ice cream. I said, I didn't order that. He said, it's on the house. Well, I'm really confused at this point. And he knew it. And he said, I'm a dad. I said, he said, I know what you're going through. <laughs> and so I, I received the check. Do you think I said to myself, I got to tip this guy now? No. I was so overcome by his grace and his mercy that I doubled the tip from 5 to 10%. <laughs> Just kidding, waiters, waitresses. I doubled the tip to 40%, and then I walked out of the restaurant beating myself up. Why didn't you tip him 50%? Why didn't you tip him 100%? Why? I couldn't get over the grace. It wasn't a duty. It was a delight at that point. It's where David is. It's where David is. And so he brings his idea to the prophet Nathan. Notice in verse 3. And Nathan said to the king, Go. Do all that is in your heart for the Lord is with you. Now, Nathan is a prophet. But as we're going to see, the word of the Lord comes to the prophets. They don't just have a perpetual word on them. They're humans like we are. And so Nathan has not received a word from the Lord yet on this suggestion. This was his personal view. It seemed like a good idea. The king's living in opulence, and, and the, the Ark of the Covenant is in a tent. But this shows us the difference between the best reasoning of godly people and the revealed Word of God. Indeed, this, this text, I think, is a clear proof of our complete dependency, complete dependency on the revealed Word of God. Think about this. We have Israel's greatest king and one of Israel's all-time greatest prophets. And here they have the highest of motives 
right? The highest, the most noble of motives that you can have. And yet when these two reason together, putting their minds together, apart from the revelation of God's word, they get it wrong. They get it flat out wrong. And this is a crucial word for us. It is so important for us, especially for those of us here with closed Bibles. And there has to be some here with closed Bibles. We live in the, the darkest ages since the medieval period when it comes to the understanding of the Word of God, knowledge of the Word of God. If sola scriptura, that is Scripture alone, is not your highest authority and God, it will be sola experientia. That will be. Experience alone. And that's two complete different worlds. The prophet and the king got it wrong, apart from divine revelation. And we have our Bibles closed. It's a dangerous place to be. And once again, the book of Samuel, 1st and 2nd Samuel, drives home the limitations of human wisdom. Even the highest of human wisdom. I mean, it's a theme in the book. The book kicked off with that. Remember in chapter 1 of 1st Samuel, Hannah is, is, is praying in the temple, crying out to God because of her infertility. And Eli, the high priest, thinks she's drunk. Prayer was so rare in those days that for somebody to be actually praying, he thought they were drunk. He was wrong. He was wrong. About the time when Samuel went to Jesse's house and he saw Jesse's oldest son, Eliab. Man, he was impressive. And he was so sure this was God's future king. He got it wrong. And then there was David. David was offended by this disrespectful Nabal. And he just knew that his responsibility was to put an end to Nabal. He got it wrong. And here again, we see the limitations of human wisdom. We have to believe that. Are you trying to raise your children with a closed Bible? That's insane. Are you trying to do marriage together with a closed Bible? It's the height of insanity. That brings us to the second part of this passage. The only way to overcome human wisdom, which is foolishness in the eyes of God, Paul tells us, is by a divine word. So we've seen the situation as David perceived it. And in verses 4 to 7, we see the situation as the Lord purposed it. Notice in verse 4. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Now Nathan can function in the office of prophet. The word of the Lord came to Nathan. For you trivia buffs, the first time we see this in the Bible 
It is in Genesis 15, verse 1. The word of the Lord coming to someone. We're going to see it a whole lot in the writing prophets. But here we see it with Nathan, and we don't know. We're not told how that word came to Nathan. But it came. And notice in verse 5. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? Now, house is a key word in 2 Samuel 7. It's used in three senses. This will become even more important next week when we get into the terms of the Davidic covenant. It's used in three ways for a palace, a temple, and a dynasty. Here it's referring to a temple. And notice in verse 6, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? So David is dismissed, right? The Lord dismisses his, his plan. But I want you to think for a moment. David had this dream to do something for God, right? And God responds by saying no. Imagine how disappointing that would have been. And it's likely all of us have been there. Where you have your plan, your aspirations, and it appears that a door may be open, and then the Lord closes that door. But here's what's important. How we respond to those disappointing closed doors, and if you haven't been disappointed yet, you will be. How you respond to those disappointing closed doors reveal whether at that moment you are living before the Lord, like we saw last week, David, that, four, that phrase before the Lord four times in 2 Samuel 6. Whether we're living before the Lord or before a Lord replacement. How you respond in those disappointments, reveal whether you're living before the Lord or before a Lord replacement. And one of the real marks of maturity is to show a deferential spirit when the disappointments come. What do I mean by that? It's to respond in a way that says, Lord, I wanted this. This was my desire. But my trust in your wisdom, my trust in your goodness, your sovereignty, your power, your providence is greater than my desire. My trust in you is greater than the desire I had for this particular opportunity. And the Lord makes three points here in verses 6 and 7 that I think are critical 
for understanding the ways of his kingdom. First of all, David's desire, though noble in a sense, minimized the greatness of God. Now, why do I say that? God had never been limited to a particular locale. The tent in which his ark was placed provided a very important and very helpful symbol that God was at all times present with his people. In fact, uh, its portability, its mobility, what did it drive home? It drove home that wherever his people went, he was with them. Isn't that comforting? It's very comforting when you live before the Lord. And even when the Philistines stole the ark, God proved he was capable of taking care of himself. He brought judgment on their, their god, Dagon. Cut off his head, cut off his feet. He was just a trunk. Reminded me of a Monty Python movie. <laughs> so David's desire minimized God's greatness in that sense. Secondly, David's desire minimized the glory of God. Now, you can't steal from God's glory. God's glory is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, but, but you can eclipse his glory. In that sense, David minimized the glory of God. God had not asked for a temple. Now, in time, one will be built. We'll look at that next week by Solomon. But for now, God knew that neither David nor Israel was ready for a temple. For one, God wanted to diffuse the idea that he possessed less glory because his ark was housed in a less than beautiful facility. Isn't that an encouraging word for us as we meet in a gym? God's glory is no less magnified in a gym than in a beautiful building or structure. The Ark of the Covenant and the tent teaches us that. Furthermore, God knew that in time, Israel would worship the temple. They would find their identity and their hope in the temple as a Lord replacement. The Lord would, or the temple would become a, a good luck charm to them. We saw Jeremiah indict that in Jeremiah 7, where he is mocking them at the temple door. The temple, the temple, the temple. They didn't believe God would bring judgment on them because they were people of the temple. The third, not only did David's desire minimize his greatness, God's greatness, and God's glory. David's desire minimized God's grace. When David reasoned apart from divine revelation, it gravitated towards works that he could accomplish for God. And the Lord here is going to flip the script on David and he lets David know, you are the receiver. I'm not the receiver. I'm the giver. God will build a house for David. One day, 
David's son, Solomon, and then a greater son, will build the temple. But since vital kingdom principles had to be taught first, God commits to that. And the first thing we see here is that everything, what God is teaching David, everything of any enduring value, everything of any redemptive value is all, comprehensively, all of grace. It's what God will do. It's not what David's going to do. Now, why do I say that? Okay. Building a house for the God a king worshipped was standard fare in the ancient Near East. That's what kings did. They, they, they worshipped these gods. Of course, we know them as false gods, but they would, they would build temples for their gods. For example, King Tut famously, you know about King Tut, he built a temple for the god Amon-Ra, the Egyptian god. In a classic quid pro quo, I'll scratch your back if you scratch mine, Amon-Ra, this, this god, Amon-Ra, allegedly promised King Tut that he would have a global reign. He, he will be able to reign the whole world and that for millions and millions of years if he built him a temple. And the order here is so insightful. King, the king builds the temple for the God. The temple makes the God famous. And then the God thanks the king for blessing him. And he blesses the king as a result. And that makes sense to us, doesn't it? Except this is the order of every religion in the world. Except the true and living faith that we know as Christians. That God says, work hard for me. Do this and you will be accepted. Do this and you will be blessed. But the true and living God reverses that. It's what he's doing with David. It's his grace, it's his power that will establish us. It's all of grace. And so God had to teach David that before a temple could be built. It's not what you're going to do for me, it's what I will do for you. The second thing that we learn from this passage is that God is not needy. He's not needy. He didn't create us because he's lonely. And he doesn't use us because he's needy. Psalm 50, verse 12. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Let me lose you for a second. There's a fancy term that we probably need to put in our vocabulary. The aseity of God. The aseity of God. What does it teach us? That God doesn't need anything beyond himself. Acts 17, verses 24 to 30. So God was teaching David, I don't need you to build me a house. God is not short on resources. That brings us to the third point that we can draw from this and David needed to learn. God's not short on resources, but we are. 
we are. I've always found it interesting that when Jesus ascended to the Father, before the disciples could lift a finger towards the Great Commission, they had to wait on the Holy Spirit. Think about this. The whole world is lost, and the only ones at the instrumental level, the human level, who can do anything about it are the disciples, and they are told to sit in a room until the Holy Spirit came. While the world is polluted in darkness, sit in that room until the Holy Spirit comes. That's very, very important for us to recognize in our marriages, in our parenting, in our life in the world. We are completely dependent on his resources. And then fourth, what David had to learn, now grounded by this grace, graciously armed with divine resources, what do we do with them? What do we do with them? Well, the answer is related to God's promise that we'll look at next week. In verse 9, notice, I will make for you a great name. That is God's promise to David. I will make for you a name, a great name. First of all, it's God who does this. And it's the anti-Babel promise. Because in the Babel Tower incident, what happens? All the peoples of the earth seek to make a name for themselves. That's what we're that's our default position, isn't it? We have this desire to be significant and to be famous and, 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 to, and to be important and to be respected. It's that babble instinct in all of us. And God reverses that and He says, There's one purpose here in creation, and it's to make the name of the anointed one from the tribe of Judah famous. And it's God's doing. And ironically, ultimately, it will come by the greatest interruption in history. All of those stories we read about and watch on in the movies about interruptions, the greatest interruption in history is the incarnation of the Son of God. And by this incarnation... We see supremely that God's glory is not minimized by a humble dwelling. The Son of God came in the likeness of sinful flesh. Indeed, God's glory will be magnified through this Son's humiliation that the ark in a tent could only approximate. Think about this. The eternal Son of God, born in that in a low condition, undergoing the miseries of this life, right? The miseries of this life, being made under the law and the wrath of God and experiencing the wrath of God on a cross and then being buried in a borrowed tomb. An ark in a tent can only approximate that in a very weak way. 
But that's how God's glory would be magnified because he didn't stay in that humble condition. God exalted him. And in fulfillment of this great promise, I will make you a name. This greater Davidic king was given a name which is above every name. And when he was raised, a temple erupted with this man as the chief cornerstone of this temple. It was the Lord's doings. The Lord did that. And in his resurrection, he sends his spirit to make temples of us individually and corporately. That's why the apostle Paul uses the metaphor of temple for the individual believer who has God who dwells in him or her and describes the church as the naos, the temple of God, which is the holy of holies. And now, armed with these divine resources, the Holy Spirit, as restored priest kings, we employ our gifts. We employ them. That's what we do. So that the world may know Indeed, that the great king's name is great. That's our calling. When you divert from that, chaos ensues. You come under the discipline of God. But when that becomes your pursuit, holy, restless pursuit, it's the path of human flourishing. It's the path to, to marriages flourishing. It's the path to, to families flourishing. And that's what God has to teach us today, 2 Samuel 7. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this text. We thank you for David's example, but we recognize some negative example here as well. Lord, we need a word from you, and we have it. A 66-book canon that is centered on the incarnate word, the great King David, and his purposes and your purposes for his people. Lord, I pray that your spirit would tether us to that calling to make his name great to the ends of the earth. And Lord, if there's any here today that have never trusted in Jesus, Lord, that you would save them today, that you would bring them to the end of themselves, that you convict them of their sin, that you would show them, Lord, there's a judgment awaits Everyone in the last day. And yet you have made provision for that judgment in your son Jesus by sending him to live in our place as the faithful covenant keeper, the faithful Adam, to die in our place, to pay the debt that we owe because of our sin. Lord, but to be raised in our place as well for those who would believe. And I pray today would be the day that anyone here that's never trusted in him would be the day of salvation. We ask this for your son's sake. Amen.